Welcome to the Power of Podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Today's episode is the last in our mini-series on the theme of collective power, which is inspired by a think piece authored by Zineb Twimi Benjaloun and Joanne Sandler. In the last episode in this mini-series, we heard from Siomara Bu and Alice Shackelford on what collective power looks like and means in Honduras, from perspectives of the UN resident coordinator, Alice, as well as a feminist civil society organization. Today, we have Florence Basti Amimi joining us. Florence is a coordinator advisor and deputy director of the coordination division in UN Women, the agency mandated to coordinate on gender equality and women's empowerment across the UN. Prior to this, Florence was the gender advisor at Development Coordination Office, the DCO, which manages and oversees the resident coordinator system and serves as a secretariat for the UN Sustainable Development Group. While Florence was at DCO, she launched the gender division and really contributed to the implementation of the UNDS reform with a gender lens. Florence has also extensive experience in coordination roles, both at regional and national level, spanning West, Central and North Africa. Welcome, Florence. Thank you, Joanna, for the opportunity to have this conversation today. Florence, can I ask, where did your passion and interest in coordination come from? Well, <laughs> my whole experience and appetite and interest for coordination came from the civil society when I first started with the UN in North Africa. And when I saw the, the power of collective action from the Moroccan civil society, and when I was working on supporting networking, but not only inside the country, but also what they have done in terms of our sub-regional also achievements between the civil society from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, how they were like supportive to each other when the, the revolution time came in Tunisia, how Algerian and Moroccan feminists mobilized themselves to support the feminists in Tunisia. That was such a big source of inspiration. And I think that's actually my interest about coordination comes from this kind of experience and especially the one of the networking because I really learned at that time when I was based in North Africa how your action, your message, your advocacy can be much more powerful if you come together than if you come one by one. It's not only a question also of advocacy, it's also a question of data. I mean, when I was working about the Center for Women Survivor of Violence, I could see the power of having harmonized data that were putting in place by the civil society in, in Morocco, because obviously they were, I mean, they managed to collect the same kind of data which means that they were able to do like analysis at the regional level, at the national level. And data means that you have fact and fact means that your discourse, your advocacy, your work, the way that you look at your programming work and policy production, it's much more relevant and powerful. So 
I know you've read the think piece by Zineb and Joanne, and I wanted to ask you, in your role as Deputy Director of the Coordination Division within UN Women, which is the agency that's mandated not only to lead, but also to coordinate and promote gender equality and advancements in women's empowerment across the UN system, What are some of your reactions to the points that were made in the think piece? I really enjoy reading and listening the conversation from Zineb and Joanne because, I mean, first of all, coordination is really a topic that has been at the heart of my career with the UN since many years now and with different experience in the field at the regional level or in HQ with UN Women, but also with DCO. So, I mean, coordination is is really something that I'm looking at because I truly believe that we need to strengthen our collective effort as one UN, first of all, but also to use this collective power to really promote and reposition gender equality and women empowerment at the really core of our work. This article tried to really think out of the box. And obviously, we have two writers who know very well the UN system. So they have like very practical and good example from inside, but at the same time, they were trying to propose kind of innovative solution, looking around and also trying to get some inspiration from different sphere and, and not only looking at the UN. Maybe to be a bit more precise about what I return in terms of some of the obstacles that they're actually highlighted, I would like to uh, stop on two of them. The first one really relates to uh, the question of like the UN have this tendency maybe to look more at the size status than at the expertise. And that makes a lot of sense in the case, I think, of UN women, especially sometimes at the country level. Why I'm saying that? Because, I mean, UN women has this, I mean, very unique a triple mandate because we, from our foundation resolution, we are mandated to work on normative, operational and coordination sides, which means that we have received the mandate to actually coordinate the UN system in terms of gender equality and women empowerment. So, I mean, we have the full legitimacy to uh, do this job and take this responsibility. However, I remember when I was based in a regional office, listening to some of the country office representative, UN women based in countries, they all, I mean, they're quite often raise the issue of other UNCT members or even some resident coordinator who didn't recognize this role of coordination, this responsibility as a coordinator when it comes to gender equality and women empowerment because of the size specifically of UN women country offices. So that's quite interesting because, I mean, we have the full legitimacy, but this legitimacy can be questioned because we are not the biggest agency sitting in a UN city. And of course, if we compare some of our country offices, we are smallest than uh, other uh, UN entities. So I really like this comment because I think it's a very relevant one regarding the size status 
which matters more than the expertise. Because obviously we have the expertise when it comes to coordinate on gender equality and women empowerment. The second one is the question of the high cost of coordination. And that also retained my attention because that was presented as a sort of obstacle or like something that we need to review or overcome or that might actually prevent collective thinking as a UN. But I mean, from my perspective, and maybe it's because also I spent some time at the DCO office working as a gender advisor in this environment of like strong believer in the coordination in general for the UN and establishing and implementing the UN reform. But I mean, from my perspective, actually, coordination when it's well done and when it's well supported should reduce the cost as an agency. So I agree with one of the points raised by Joanne and Zineb regarding the fact that we have never been really able to show how efficient could be coordination. And so that's why there is this kind of assumption that it might cost more. But I do believe that we need to maybe invest more in assessing how coordination can also benefit to the UN system in terms of costing. Because definitely, if we can agree on having the same accounting system, the same rules, the same procurement, and trying also to align our organizational cultures across UN agency, that will definitely have a positive impact. And also from the people we serve, because, I mean, to be honest, from the people look at the UN, they don't really make the difference between one agency to another. They don't really make difference between the secretariat and the agency. So, I mean, we are all UN. So it's very interesting to see that how people look at us and how we see ourselves. So at this point also, I think it's a point that we need to discuss further within the system. And I think maybe one obstacle or one barrier was missing and it's not regarding like collective action in general but really what is kind of obstacle for bringing gender equality and women empowerment as a core priority for coordinated action for joint program it's really about competitive with other thematic I didn't really realize that when I was in UN Women, but when I work at DCO, I realized as a gender advisor that I had to kind of fight to explain why women and girls shouldn't be considered as part of the minority. Of course, they are uh, part of the leave no one behind concept. But I mean, most of the time when I raise a question of like gender equality and women's rights, the feedback I received was like, yeah, but you know, there is also people living with disabilities. There is also youth. There is also indigenous people. So, I mean, it's just like women and girls being considered as a minority while we are uh, half of the population. So it's not exactly the same scale, first of all, and it's not the same history and it's not also the same consequences in terms of development and in terms of impact for the Agenda 2030. Because, I mean, ignoring or not addressing properly specific needs of women and girls to implement the Agenda 2030 and, and achieve the SDG targets, it's a bit different when you are talking about half of the worldwide population and when you are talking about kind of smaller group. So I think it's also a quite important barrier 
to really bring gender equality and women empowerment under collective action because there is this kind of competition between different populations. I think you've touched on a number of very interesting points. In the Think piece, one of the things that Zineb and Joanne raised was that perhaps in some cases, full-blown coordination is not necessary. And one agency that has the expertise, that has the capacity to take a specific program forward at country level should just go ahead and lead. What's your, your view with that sort of a statement where perhaps... It's okay to have someone leading even outside of UN women. Should we try to be distinguishing situations where coordination is absolutely essential versus cases where it may not be? I remember the example that were used and it's a spotlight example. And I've been involved in Spotlight since <laughs> a while because even when we were drafting the program, I was in the regional office at that moment and contribute to the program document elaboration for our region and to the process. And then when I was in DCO, of course, because DAG, the Deputy Secretary General, pay a lot of attention to Spotlight. But I also agree with this kind of challenge in terms of managing. And I think it was a good example because typically Spotlight, I mean, this program should be coordinated by UN women. There is no reason to create an additional structure. And even at the country level, it was quite tricky in some countries, not in whole. I mean, in many countries, uh, UNCT understood very well as uh, a coordination mandate and it was supported by resident coordinator as well. But in other, I mean, the size of the program and the huge amount of money comparing to the small maybe size of the UN Women Country Office actually made the coordination difficult. I do believe that because sometimes people make a confusion about what is coordination. I mean, coordination is not about only coordinate meeting or organize or bringing people. Although I do believe that the convening role of coordination is very important and I can come back on that point. But it's also very important to relate coordination with kind of substantive analysis and technical analysis and also expertise in terms of what you have to coordinate. And that's why also that explains this triple mandate for UN women. As a UN woman, we can coordinate on gender equality and women empowerment because we also work in the operational and normative sides, which means that we have the substance, we have the content, we have the data and the experience and the right partner to actually bring the issue in the right direction. So that's why it's so important about this triple mandate because, I mean, coordination is possible and relevant and could be very powerful for having an impact on women and girls because we have the two other pillar of our mandate. So I think it can work also very clearly on other topics. I'm just, I'm just thinking about also as the agency in charge of HIV, UN AIDS. They also have the legitimacy in terms of expertise regarding one topic and they are doing coordination and they are not like a big one and, and they achieve great results. So I think it's a good way to look at coordination to make the link with the expertise and it's not relevant only for gender equality and women empowerment, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And just to hand on that point, I think it's also going in the sense of the reform, the ongoing UN reform 
because, I mean, it's really something that the reform brought also in terms of first starting from the analysis and what do we need and where do we need the expertise and what kind of expertise, but everything starts from the analysis. If you look at the new cooperation framework steps, which is now the main planning tool at the country level, everything started with a common country assessment. And it says a lot about the reform and how do we look now at our role as a UN. I mean, you need first to have this expertise, this analysis, this data, and then based on that, you can actually decide who will be the best position, who will have the comparative advantage, who will bring the expertise to answer these needs. So everything starts and should start from the needs at the country level. Thank you. I wanted to pick up on this point in terms of the UN's gender architecture, which is currently under review. And an opportunity in many ways, I think, to make sure that it's not just another window dressing exercise, but really a review that will substantially inform how the gender equality architecture across the UN can be strengthened and work better together, which is this coordination piece, right? So based on your reflections within your current role, but also in terms of past experience with coordination at various levels, what do you think are some of the critical points that the review should really focus on and, and make sure to interrogate fully to be able to answer and, and guide some of the substantive steps that need to be taken to move forward? Well, <laughs> first of all, I want to look at this review as an opportunity. And I think it is very much related to the high commitment from the Secretary General and the Deputy Secretary General on gender equality and women empowerment. It was really impressive from a coordination point of view how we managed to actually come all together and including uh, integrated answer to the COVID with a high dimension on gender equality and women empowerment. And I mean, from my perspective, it shows also to the Secretary General and the DAG how we can integrate and really bring gender equality at the highest level. As I said, it has been a, a priority for both of them since the beginning. They are highly committed. So I do believe that actually they really want to use this review to enhance gender equality and bring them as a core priority for the UN system. And also because I work also several years in DCO, we have previous reform, but maybe I'm, I'm a bit too optimistic. But what I saw when I was in DCO was really like committed people, people who have been very practical, very pragmatic, really want to implement the reform. So, I mean, even only in, in three years, I saw so many achievements, so many results in terms of reform implementation. And I want to look at this this gender architecture as also a kind of declination of this reform. Um, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that, for instance, one of the guiding principles for the cooperation framework, which is a major piece for the reform, is gender equality. So it's really at the center of the reform. And I do believe that this architecture review is really aiming to find solution and bring some hopefully good proposal to strengthen gender equality and women empowerment in the UN system. In terms of like some of maybe topic I would like to see in the conclusion or maybe the recommendation, one will be 
to enhance and clarify and strengthen UN Women <laughs> coordination mandate. As I said, just to actually try to mitigate this tendency of looking at UN women more in terms of size and expertise. I mean, I won't develop, but I think it's something that needs also to be clarified in this review and remind the UN system why UN women was created. And I mean, there was a reason, there was a rationale before the creation of UN women. And 10 years after, it's something that I think it's important. We remind and we strengthen and we enhance because we do need UN women, I believe, more than ever if you look at so many backlash we have on women's rights in many different regions. So that's number one. Number two, probably also some questions that need to be addressed in this architecture review is like how to articulate the different levels. What do we mean by coordination at the country level? What do we mean by coordination at the regional and at the HQ? And what are the role and responsibility for each of those levels? Sometimes there is a confusion. It's especially can be tricky also to find the right role for the regional level. I mean, I've been working at the three of these levels. And when I was at the country level, it was very and clear for me what coordination was doing in the corporate level, in HQ level, where it was quite clear what was original because, of course, they were our first counterpart and also service support. And then I realized when I, I started to work in HQ, how many work is ongoing in terms of coordination, how many advocacy, how many interagency initiatives, how many people dedicated to this question, and that sometimes never really reached the field. So I think it's very important that we think about this articulation and how to ensure that what is discussed in HQ have a direct pivot to the field because ultimately it's really the field, I mean, from my perspective, which matters. This is where you build your credibility as an agency. This is where you have an impact on the people you serve and really the level when you can play a, a strategic coordination role. And here I'm, I'm thinking really about convening role, bringing people at the same table who usually don't talk to each other or don't really work together. I mean, this is, I think, the beauty of the UN system. And it's something that I really enjoy when I was at the country and at the regional level. I mean, the UN has this expertise of convening and supporting networking, dialogue. So I think it's really something we need to better articulate at the different levels. So I hope the gender architecture will propose a kind of rethinking enhancement of this gender architecture as a different level. I mean, UN Women is already working and really doing a great job with UNICEF and UNDP and UNFPA regarding the gender thematic group at the country level. I think it's a great initiative because it's really involves different UN agencies working together and really looking in terms of how to leverage this kind of interagency mechanism at the country level to ensure that gender equality and women empowerment will receive the policy support, the technical guidance that all UNCT member states and civil society deserve. So I think it's something that it's already ongoing at the country level and need to be really a review with a gender architecture review. And the third and last point I would like to see include is about the accountability mechanism. So it's not something that we really need to 
create, but how can we make as a system more accountable? And I would like to see some recommendation and some proposal regarding that. And of course, when we talk about accountability, we talk about money. So it's something to say that you are committed. It's something else to dedicate part of your budget to gender equality and women empowerment. So it's definitely something that the gender architecture should look at. I know I said it was my last point, but actually I'm just thinking about another one, which will be related to what I mentioned earlier, and it's related to the cost of coordination. would be great that actually this review can also include or propose a costing of coordination and what and how much it will cost to work in a more integrated manner for gender equality and women empowerment. And also to look at some kind of communalities. I mean, there is a common agenda, which is ongoing, which is a good initiative. But yes, definitely, we might also want to look more deeper about how we can reduce and have a better idea about how much cost coordination. I mean, I can continue because I, there is so many things I would like to see in this review, but I guess this is a four main point that I wanted to share. Thank you. Can I ask, in terms of the accountability point that you raised earlier, I don't know if you could elaborate a little bit in terms of what steps you think could be taken to really strengthen some of the existing accountability structures or mechanisms to advance this collective action or power for gender equality. The accountability is a very important one and also a very tricky one because, I mean, as a UN woman and with our mandate, we don't want to be seen as a police of the UN system on gender equality and women empowerment. And also based on my experience within UNCT, it's not always very efficient, you know, to come to a UNCT and say, you are accountable because there is a QCPR resolution from the member states and because there is a UNCT swap and there is a UN swap. So as an entity, you have to look at the performance indicator. Those accountability mechanisms exist and it's important they exist. But maybe the next step will be actually to make the UN system understand the work they are doing will be much more impactful if they are including a gender-based assessment, if they are including a specific link from women and girl, because we are talking about half of the population. And we have analysis that shows that actually any kind of development program or even in situation of humanitarian, of post-crisis, you will get much better results if you use a gender-based approach. When I was at the regional level and delivered training on gender equality and women empowerment or gender mainstreaming, I always try to adjust also my presentation depending in my audience. I used to say that there is basically two different approaches. The first one is like when you are in front of like people who are human rights defender, you can use a, a human rights-based approach and say basically, yes, you have to include gender equality and women empowerment because this is the right thing to do. But this one doesn't work <laughs> all the time because people also look for some of 
kind of incentive, you know. We have analysis, we have data that shows that if you are not including women, if you are not using a gender-based approach to your result framework, you have less chance to get good results. Bringing women, bringing girls specific needs, bringing gender analysis in the beginning of your process will just take you to so much impactful program. It's not my favorite way because it's, I think it's a very kind of utilized uh, way to look at uh, gender equality and women's rights, but it's also working. So it's a question of balance. Of course, we have the tools and it's very important to use the tools, but it's also important, I think, to maybe use a kind of narrative of rational to show the UN system that basically it is in their interest as agency and also to look at the result and to achieve results that they will be able to show to the donor, to the executive board. Maybe one last example also regarding the specific tool, the UNCT swap specifically, because this is the one I know the best and I have used the most in the field. The UNCT swap can be an exercise that you do like for a week, you bring all the UNCT together, you assess your results, you assess your organizational culture, your finance, your leadership, and then it can stay in some desk for many years and, and not use it. So what is important with this kind of accountability mechanism tools is use the results and the assessment and the data that you have generated in terms of planning, of programming and showing the UNCT how this mechanism will be useful. And I think we did great progress in the last three years, thanks to the coordination division in UN Women and the collaboration with DCO, because we managed to actually show to the UNCT that the UNCT swap is a very useful analysis tools to make their cooperation framework and their CCA better. And as soon as I understand how they can use the UNCT swap, not only as a reporting tool or accountability mechanism, but also as a good support for planning and programming, they started to look at it differently. So I think accountability is really how to find the right balance between incentive tools responsibility. And it's the same for the money. I mean, we are, this is a very a challenging period in terms of resource mobilization. We are in a kind of transition. So people want to look at their money with a very careful and strategic way. There is this high-level task force that has been established in 2019 by the Secretary General to look at the finance and to look at option to increase the budget dedicated to gender equality and women empowerment. And I think it's a very important one. Gender responsive budget have shown incredibly good results because if you look at it also as a governance tools and not only as a financial tools, but really as a governance and how do you look as a country at your public policies and how you mainstream gender in your financial law. Those are very powerful tools that might have been a bit underutilized and even maybe a bit underestimated. Accountability, just to conclude on that point, is like is not only saying to people that they are accountable. It's really to show them how they can 
use these accountability tools and how they can enhance that gender-based approach. I mean, my experience is like a lot of agency in the UN system and a lot of colleagues, it's not that they don't want to look at uh, gender equality or women empowerment, but the question is most of the time is how. So they feel they are accountable, they can feel it's relevant, it's important, but they don't always know how to do that. And this is where UN women also can bring a comparative advantage because, I mean, we can answer this question about how. How can I enhance my gender mainstreaming in my product? How I can ensure that uh, women and girls' specific needs are well included in our policy? So I think it's uh, a balance between different aspects of accountability. Mm. I think it's that point around incentive versus stick with the accountability and making the judgment call as to where the right balance is, I think is a really, really important point that has come up actually in some of the previous work we've done here at UNUIIGH. Wish we had more time, but I wanted to finish by asking you a little bit about more inclusion of feminist civil society actors, not just in terms of being seen as implementers and, and support, you know, in that way, but actually in terms of the expertise that they bring in and how to better learn from their experiences of coordinating from a very feminist perspective. What can the UN draw on or learn from feminist civil society actors? I think we have a lot to learn from the feminist movement in terms of how to work better. And it's quite interesting and quite a bit maybe paradoxical because this is something that as a UN Women Country Office, we are always encouraging in the field. Like when we work, when we engage with the civil society, we always engage to work together, to think about communalities, collective action. And it's something that we are not always able to do ourselves. So it's like preaching for something that we cannot always demonstrate by our own example. So I think there is a lot to learn in terms of the collective power. Also, maybe I believe that there is a lot to learn also in terms of kind of cultural or organizational structure. The UN, maybe not all, I mean, Again, that's a bit tricky to make a, a big generality about that because not all the UN agencies have the same culture. But, I mean, UN could be very hierarchical. Maybe we can also learn about, I mean, from the civil society, more like kind of horizontal leadership, how to also benefit from youth contribution. The feminist, I mean, feminist movement have their own challenge in terms of like renewal of the leadership and their movement. But yeah, I think I learned a lot about how the civil society and the feminist movement can actually overcome their own difference when it's important. I mean, when the goal matter more than the very small differences. So I think it's also something that we can learn from the feminist movement as a UN and just to keep in mind and always remember that we are serving people and who are the people we are serving. This is the end of our mini-series on the power of the collective. If you haven't already, please visit the Gender and Health Hub website where you can find Zineb and Joanne's think piece on the collective power for gender equality and unfinished agenda for the UN. Look out for our next think piece and podcast mini-series, which is focusing on the power of feminist leadership. 
visit our website at www.genderhealthhub.org or you can visit the UNUIIGH website, which is www.iigh.unu.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. The UNUIIGH Twitter handle is at UNU underscore IIGH or the Gender and Health Hub Twitter handle, which is at Gender Health Hub. And send us your feedback and suggestions via email, iigh-info at unu.edu. Thank you so much again for joining us. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only. Thank you.